Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogonia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, August 16th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we will suffer through one more presentation of the Jews in Europe, the Reuschland Affair Revisited, Part 2. And, as I explained in our first segment of this presentation, I believe that this is of crucial importance to understand the actions and mentality of the Jews in Europe, as we also did with the two segments of the Spanish Inquisition series before this, before we start, or I should say before we resume our presentation of the Protocols of Satan. But this will also edify, I pray, our backgrounds as to understand better the forces behind the Protestant Reformation in Europe as we resume our series on Martin Luther in Life and Death at some point in the future. In the first segment of our presentation from Chapter 7 of the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit and its Impact on World History by E. Michael Jones, we saw how it was that Johann Reuschland, a trained lawyer and a man who in his own time was widely considered to be one of the greatest scholars in Europe, second only to Erasmus of Rotterdam how he became infatuated with the Kabbalah and took it upon himself to be the role as of the defender of the Talmud and the other anti-Christian writings of the Jews. However, it is important to understand that this was only a part, although it was a significant and important part, of the much wider unrest within the church itself in regard to literary and scientific studies. E. Michael Jones had stated in the first part of this chapter that humanistic studies of the sort promoted by Erasmus of Rotterdam had suggested that a new day of enlightened tolerance was about to dawn after the long night of scholastic obscurantism, and so the Jews were emboldened to act. It is readily evident that at this time, the limitations which the institutions within the Roman Catholic Church had long imposed upon the study and publication of profane literature were being increasingly rebelled against by men within those church institutions, and Erasmus was a leader in that struggle. In part three of our series on Martin Luther in Life and Death, we had said the following about Erasmus. The celebrated Catholic priest, Erasmus, was actually a humanist and not a Christian at all. In turn, Erasmus had fostered the development of an entire collection of fellow humanists inside the Catholic Church organization in Germany. We have already seen in the writings of students of Erasmus, such as Mutian, 
that humanists were also basically ecumenists, professing the validity of all religions in the deception that all religions really worship the same God. Now we hope to exhibit how humanists were also apologists for the Jews and had fully infiltrated the courts of the papacy and the bishoprics of the empire. And we believe that we certainly did go on to do that in the subsequent parts of that series. Then, summarizing, all the evidence we had witnessed in support of those statements throughout the early portions of that same series of presentations, we said in Part 7 of the series, which was subtitled Luther and the Humanists, that in the earlier portions of this presentation, we have already discussed at length how Luther had fallen in with many of the noted humanists, German humanists, while he was a young student at the University of Erfurt, where, among his closest friends, was the future noted humanist and so-called poet called Crotus Rubianus. We saw that when Luther had decided to enter the monastery after a personal epiphany, many of his humanist friends had been shocked at his sudden piety and his turn to Christianity. We had also discussed at length the humanism of the Catholic priest Erasmus, and how Erasmus had used his own name, position, and notoriety to encourage and cultivate many of the young German humanists from inside of the church itself. Another Catholic priest turned impious pagan humanist was Murian, who was a Catholic prebendary and professor at Erfurt, and who became the leader of the rather large group of humanists there. Murian's group of humanists came to be very vocal and active supporters of Johann Reuschlin in the Reuschlin controversy which we had also discussed there at length. We had also seen illustrated that the objectives of these humanists was to replace Christianity with immoral and pagan humanism within the church itself, and that they also promoted lasciviousness and all forms of immorality, including even the promotion of perverted forms of sexual awareness among children. And we certainly documented all of that in those presentations. So we must keep that in mind when we continue to discuss these same humanists, not only in relation to what E. Michael Jones has to offer us here, in his discussion of the Reuschling controversy, but also as we proceed through the Reformation in our presentations of Martin Luther in Life and Death, which I pray are still ongoing, even though it might be a while before we get back to them, and especially in, if Yahweh is willing, the upcoming presentations we plan on what we call the Protocols of Satan.
or the protocols of the learned elders of Zeon, which, to those who have ears to hear, we already pray to have proven the authenticity. Now we can not repeat all of the supporting evidence for these statements we have given here now, which took many weeks to present here last year. However, as we have explained, now we are making a new examination of the Reuschland controversy from the somewhat enhanced perspective of E. Michael Jones, because we hope to expose further in further depth the Jewish treachery which underlies the rise of humanism leading up to the Reformation. As we have also seen attested, the fight to destroy the Talmud had manifested itself several times over the centuries, and most notably in the famous 13th century Disputation of Paris, in which the converso Jew Nicholas Donin was involved. However, the Dominicans especially, even though it was for all the wrong reasons, had long wanted to force the Jews to dispose of their books, errantly believing that the books themselves were the source of inherent Jewish wickedness. We must forgive them to a degree for being blind to the issue of race and genetics. However, the Spanish had in some degree come to recognize those issues several decades before Reuschland. Erasmus was a humanist, and while most humanists were apparently not Jews, the Jews benefited greatly from the humanist struggle within the church by using men such as Reuschland to attach to it their own struggle to keep the Talmud. Erasmus and the humanists, being ecumenists as well as pagans, and esteeming all religions as having equal validity, readily accepted the Jews as partners in their struggle against the church, and rallied to the support of Reuschland. The bottom line seems to be this, that in spite of all the faults, of the Roman Catholic Church. The traditional Roman Catholics sought to uphold Christian morality in the face of pagan decadence, and were also against the Jews and their writings, even though they wrongly attributed Jewish wickedness to confession rather than race. But the humanists promoted decadence and were also friends and supporters of the Jews, and defended their confession as well as their race. History has proven that from the very beginning, pagan humanists have allied themselves with the Jews in the partnership to recreate Sodom and Gomorrah atop of the graveyard of traditional European Christianity. Parenthetically, we do not know how, Erasmus and Reuschland came to be esteemed as the two greatest scholars in the German Empire, 
But we can only imagine that the devils had something to do with that as well. We had ended the first part of our presentation of this chapter and Jones's discussion of the Reuschland controversy with a study of Reuschland's infatuation with the Kabbalah and other Jewish writings. This infatuation led Reuschland to esteem the Jewish writings above the Christian, where Reuschland went so far as to claim that the Bible could not be understood without the Jewish writings and a study of the Hebrew language. Now, we must agree with Reuschland on the part concerning the language and even extend that understanding to the Greek of Scripture as well. But we would confute Reuschland's idea that we need post-Christian Jewish literature or that we need Jews at all in order to facilitate those studies. As Jones redacts Reuschland's statements, Reuschland went so far as to uphold the idea that since the Jews are our archivists, librarians, and antiquarians who preserve books that can, be, that can serve as witnesses to our faith, Christians should take care of the existing books, protect and respect them rather than burn them, for from them flows the true meaning of the language and understanding of our sacred scripture. And then with that, Jones rather correctly concludes that one needn't be a learned theologian to see that Reuschland was turning the Talmud into a meta-scripture that would serve as the criterion of what was valid in the Bible. The Hermetic texts had become, in Reuschland's eyes, of course, the real scriptures, and they were to be interpreted not by the Catholic Church, but by the nascent academic establishment which had taken instruction at the feet of the rabbis in an atmosphere of quasi-Masonic quasi hermeticism. And we would agree with Jones in that respect, wholeheartedly. In response to that, we had remarked of the naivety of Reuschland that it is astounding and also how that same naivety had preponderated amongst learned men of the time. We also suggested that because of such naivety among the humanists, that the Jews would indeed come to rule over Christendom. The result which we see was inevitable even then. As a reading of Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies clearly demonstrates, for most of his life, Martin Luther shared that same naivety and only came to understand Jewish treachery and perfidy towards the end of his life when it was too late even for him to change course or affect the permissive attitudes towards the Jews within the church that bore his name. Less than three years after the publication of his first tract, 
warning his countrymen of the Jews, Luther was dead. Here we shall commence. With this chapter of Jones's book, which is titled Roislin versus Peppercorn, upon a supposed investigation of blasphemous Jewish books, Roislin could only find offense in two rather late tracts, which, despite their use in Germany, were of little traditional significance to the Jews. With that, Roislin took to defending the Kabbalah, the Talmud, which he admitted he never even read, and all of the traditional Jewish writings. And then, he had extended his opinions to far more than a mere defense but even began promoting those writings to Christians. Being at the point where Reuschland has gone so far as asserting that the Jews and Jewish writings should be the filter through which Christians should understand Scripture, as if Christians should learn about God only from the devil, Jones responds to protest Reuschland's methods and motives by asking, and who was to decide whether a particular Hebrew text was blasphemous or instead a quote-unquote buried treasure as Reuschland was so naive as to refer to them. The implication seems clear, Jones attributing this position to Reuschland, only those who knew Hebrew were qualified to decide. The ultimate authority in the church devolved upon those who had taken hermetic instruction from the rabbis, as had Reuschland. Otherwise, the Jews ought to be, and these are Reuschland's words, the Jews ought to be left in peace in their synagogues and in the exercise of ceremonies, rites, customs, habits, and devotions, especially when they do not go against what is right and do not manifestly insult our Christian church. Because the Christian church has nothing to do with them, as long as the Jews keep the peace, they ought to be left in peace, and all this must be observed so that they cannot say that they are being forced and compelled to convert to our faith. So, Reuschland's fallback position was basically to leave the wolves in peace amidst the sheep. That doesn't work. Jones goes on to say that in an especially self-serving passage, Reuschland recommended that the German universities should hire for the next ten years two lecturers each who would be capable and have the task of teaching students Hebrew and instructing them in this language if this is done. I doubt not that in a few years our students will be so well versed in the Hebrew language that they will be able to bring the Jews over to our side with a reasonable and friendly word and gentle means. And as we have already remarked, from a standpoint of doctrine, Reuschland was basically 
a Christian in name only. He was under the impression that the Kabbalah agreed with Christianity because the Kabbalah teaches that a man can ultimately become a god. But, quite to the contrary, Christianity teaches that Christ did not become a god, but instead, Christ was God, who became man. Reuschland's profession is therefore a Jewish profession. He's not a Christian at all, except in name. His profession is a Jewish profession, and it is antichrist in nature. Jones doesn't realize that much. Jones continues, Pfefferkorn gained access to Reuschland's report and was outraged. Remember that Pfefferkorn is the converso Jew who became a Dominican monk and decided to make himself the spokesman of the Dominican monks in the Reuschland controversy by courting certain of the nobles and taking it upon himself to write letters against Reuschland. Every scholar appointed to the commission, the commission to evaluate Reuschland's position on the Kabbalah, had written in favor of Pfefferkorn's proposal, except Reuschland, meaning that Reuschland wanted the Jews to keep the Talmud, and nobody else did. Pfefferkorn gave his interpretation of what had happened in Hant Spiegel, which means Hand Mirror, published in spring 1511. Pfefferkorn claimed that a fat Jew sat on his book, which is to say, Reuschland had been suborned by the Jews. All, with the exception of Johann Reuschland, Pfefferkorn continued, unanimously declared and wrote for Christ, inspired by the Holy Spirit. His report alone supported the perfidy of the Jews rather than the apostolic see and the most holy cause of our faith. Pfefferkorn denounced Reuschland as a half-Jew and a Judas, so Reuschland the German is being called a half-Jew, by Pfefferkorn the converso Jew, and the humanists will take great advantage of that situation later on. As a result of Reuschland's recommendation, the emperor, and this was a multi-person commission of four or five German scholars, who were appointed to decide whether or not the Jews of Frankfurt, Germany, should keep their Talmud, their Talmuds, their Kabbalahs, and their Jewish writings. And all of the other scholars said, no, they should not keep those things. And here we have, and this is how influential Reuschland was. As a result of Reuschland's recommendation, the emperor did not renew the mandate to confiscate the Jewish books. Reuschland had killed the project, and Pfefferkorn was furious. Pfefferkorn correctly claimed 
that the Jews bribed Christians in high places, and they filled the ears of the good emperor with false advice, so that his imperial majesty gave orders to restore the books to the Jews. Now, Jones is right in that assessment. The Jews, obviously, from information that Jones has supplied us, did indeed do those things. And we can see between the lines, although Johann Janssen, in his history of the German people in the Middle Ages, although he did not state these things explicitly, he didn't come out and spell some of them out, as Jones has, from original letters and documents. Johann Janssen didn't do that, but you could see between the lines and with the circumstances that the information that Jones has supplied in that regard is indeed credible. So Jones is only filling in some of the blanks that Johann Janssen had left us when we presented the Reuschland Affair in our series of on Martin Luther. He's filling in some of the blanks and he's affirming a lot of our suspicions. And he goes on to say that Pfefferkorn knew about the bribe Levi Zion gave the Margrave of Baden. He claimed that Reuchland had been bribed also because the Jews had told him, Reuchland knows how to deal with you and oppose you. They told me, and he's quoting Pfefferkorn, they told me that they were in close contact with Reuschland and very well informed about this matter. Pfefferkorn recalled the German proverb, Die Gelherten, die Verkerten, which is to say, the learned are easily corrupted. Pfefferkorn felt doubly betrayed because, on the basis of his private consultation with Reuschland, in 1510, he felt he had nothing to fear from Reuschland. Quote-unquote, he treated me most cordially and expressed pleasure at my coming, and what is more, he instructed me in what to do in the presence of the emperor, of which I had proof in his own handwriting. Then, when he had cleverly found out everything about the matter from me, he falsely reassured me, and devoutly promised to write to me. He did no such thing, but instead traduced me in his report to his royal majesty, contrary to his promise in acting, most impiously. And so he betrayed me, as Judas betrayed Christ." And we must note the reversal of roads, that Pfefferkorn is a converso Jew, working for the Christian Dominican monks, and Reuschland is most assuredly a true German, working on behalf of the Jews. Reuschland was furious when he learned Pfefferkorn was privy to what he considered a confidential evaluation meant only for the emperor's eyes. So Reuschland never expected any criticism for his decision. He accused Pfefferkorn of breaking the seal on his report and gaining illicit access. Reuschland claimed Pfefferkorn was a pawn of the Cologne Dominicans. In 1518, Ortwin Gradius 
a leader of the Cologne Dominicans, denied they bore any responsibility for the publication of the Hans Spiegel. Peppercorn was in Mainz when Hans Spiegel, the booklet that he wrote in response to Reuschland's decision, which Reuschland expected to be confidential between himself and the Emperor. Pfefferkorn was in Mainz when Hans Spiegel appeared at the Frankfurt Book Convention in April 1511. Taking Reuschland's part in the controversy, Gratz, meaning the heavily biased Jewish so-called historian Heinrich Gretz, Gretz, who wrote in the middle of the 1800s. Gretz also claimed Pfefferkorn was a pawn of the Dominicans, who concocted the scheme to confiscate the Talmud, so they could extort money from the Jews. Since the Jews could not do without the Talmud, they would pour their wealth into Dominican coffers to have the confiscation annulled. And of course, Gretz is only conjecturing that. Gretz also claimed Pfefferkorn lured Reuschlin into a cunningly devised trap. And then Jones is intelligent enough and discerning enough to assert that Gretz gives no evidence to support his claim. The Dominicans accused Reuschlin of disingenuousness. The Jews' hatred for Christians was universally known. Every Jew who had left Judaism could tell stories about it. So I guess there were a lot of self-hating Jews. Only a few Christians, especially Johann Reuschlin from Stockgarten, denied this hatred and would not admit that Jews prayed against Christians. Anyone who denied this knew nothing of Jewish scriptures. Reuschlin's admitted ignorance of the Talmud means he had not written the document that appeared under his name. In other words, in other words, Jones is asserting that Reuschlin didn't really write his letter to the emperor in support of the Jewish books. And that's a that is a possibility because Jones had already provided evidence that Reuschlin did not, by his own admission, did not read the Talmud. He was only interested in the Kabbalah and other Jewish mystical books. Jones goes on to say that Reuschlin was handicapped in responding because he was caught in a contradiction. He claimed the Talmud was not pernicious, yet he admitted he had never read it. The Dominicans pressed the issue, reminding Reuschlin that there weren't just two pernicious Jewish books, and that Jews did not prescribe the two he mentioned. Quite to the contrary, the Jews read from Toledoth Jeshu every year at Christmas time in the hope that God would punish Jesus because of his false teaching. After Pfefferkorn published Hans Spiegel, Reuschlin took his case to the emperor not content to wait for a legal verdict. Reuschland joined battle in the realm of political pu publishing 
newly created by the invention of the printing press. In late August or early September of 1511, Reuchlin issued his pamphlet, Augenspiegel, meaning eye mirror or spectacles, which defended both Jewish books and his own integrity as a disinterested scholar. But, according to Gretz, Reuchlin was an avowed enemy of the circumcised, and this seems to be all propaganda. According to Gretz, Reuchlin's writings were suffused with racism, including routine reference to Pfefferkorn as a toft jud, what the Spaniards would term a Murano or a converso. In our last segment, we saw Jones use this phrase, and we were not aware that he finally defines it here. He misspelled it as Toft Yud rather than Toft Jud on other occasions where he used it, so it is no wonder we couldn't find a translation. He evidently also misspelled it here, using two F's instead of one. It apparently refers to a baptized Jew. That's all it is. Toft Jud is, or Toft Yud is baptized Jew. Reuschlin, he says, Reuschlin wanted to rescue the Jewish scriptures for the Kabbalists. Neither he nor his colleagues were fond of Jews. This is Gretz's evaluation of Reuschlin. Indeed, their dislike of Jews did not stop even after the Jew became baptized. In this, they were less like their forebears of the Crusades, and more like their descendants of the Third Reich, who felt, as Edith Stein was to learn. And here, E. Michael Jones is sort of picking up the idea of Heinrich Gretz, and he's carrying it. E. Michael Jones has adopted Heinrich Gretz's charges of racism against Reuschlin, and he also extends it to all the humanists, and it's wrong, and we will describe that later. We will discuss it as this evening progresses. Indeed, their dislike of Jews, meaning Reuschlin and all the humanists, did not stop even after the Jew became baptized. In this, they were less like their forebears of the Crusades and more like their descendants of the Third Reich, who felt, as Edith Stein was to learn, that baptism did not erase Jewishness, because Jewishness was a racial phenomenon, not religious. Pfefferkorn complained bitterly and often about the racist remarks of professors and preachers who, as fellow Christians, should have accepted him as a brother, but instead made remarks like, to trust a Jew is like putting a snake into your bosom, a burning coal in your lap, and a mouse in your pocket. Pfefferkorn thought that way about Jews too but was offended that his fellow Christians thought that way about him 
after his baptism. And it may be noted that these haters of the Jews would have been traditional Christian professors and preachers, rather than the pagan humanists. Jones seems to be accepting of Gretz's charge that Reuschlin was a racist against the Jews, even though Jones himself had admitted previously that Reuschlin was more than eager to learn Hebrew and the Kabbalah at the feet of the rabbis, as he himself had put it. The two claims are certainly seemingly contradictory, and we do not believe that Reuschlin was a racist at all. We wish that the reformers and the humanists were racist, but they certainly were not, and we will show that as this evening progresses. Continu continuing with our account, Jones goes on to say that in November 1510, the theology, theology faculty at the University of Cologne issued two reports responding to Reuschlin's letter to the emperor. The theologians reminded Reuschlin that the Talmud contained not only errors and false statements, but also blasphemies and heresies against their own law. And of course, the traditional Roman Catholics errantly saw the Old Testament as a Jewish law. For this reason, Popes Gregory and Innocent had ordered the said book to be burned, meaning the Talmud. The Talmud and the Kabbalah were corrupt. They were fundamentally different from, and therefore did not, convey the intention of Moses' books and those of other Hebrew prophets and wise men. Unlike Reuschlin, who sought to preserve the books to derive esoteric knowledge from them, the faculty at Cologne decreed that Pfefferkorn and the Dominicans were acting for the common good. That meant it would be impious and irreligious to allow them the use of books which they, who are mockers and blasphemers of the Lord Christ, might use to teach their children. Proceeding against the Talmud was in the interest of the Christian faith as well as of the Jews' salvation, an idea that Reuschlin subverted when he said that what the Jews believed was none of their business. The Dominicans then reiterated concerns articulated at the Fourth Lateran Council 300 years earlier, where it said, it seems expedient to prevent the Jews from practicing usury and to allow them to take up honest work for a living, but let them be distinguished from Christians by a badge, a big yellow six-pointed star, and let them be taught in their own language by experienced converts about the true law and the prophets for the glory of God, their own salvation, and the increase of the Christian faith. What a wayward idea that is. While the Fourth Lateran Council made this profession in the very early 13th century, when the Jews were forcibly converted in Spain in the decades which followed, 
they were still not restricted from usury and forced into honest vocations. And every time Christians tried to force those things upon the Jews, they have failed. So ultimately, Luther's solution was to take everything from them, books as well as money and property, and force them to live in open fields. That too would have ultimately failed to rehabilitate the Jews. Continuing with Jones, the emperor was unmoved. He refused to order reconfiscation of the books. Reuchlin was wrong when he claimed the Talmud had never been burned, but he was right in claiming that the piety of his ancestor's generation exceeded that of his own. As we have seen, a new spirit was abroad, one which condoned blasphemy in the name of scholarship, and disapproved of burning books as something that educated people did not do. And here it must be noted that if Reuchlin truly claimed in such a context that the piety of his ancestor's generation exceeded that of his own, then he must have been approving of the impiety of his own generation in order to accept its consequences. Accepting the idea that burning books was something that educated people did not do goes hand in hand with the acceptance of progressivism as something good and modern rather than as something wicked and destructive and undermining of civilization undermining of Christian morals and community. Jones continues, The Jews were overjoyed by the emperor's verdict. Like their ancestors, and I have to really choke on these words, like their ancestors at the foot of Mount Sinai, the Jews made two images, one of Johann Reuchlin in angelic form, like a prophet, the other of Pfefferkorn in the shape of a devil. So once again we see that Jones accepts the lie that the Jews are the Old Testament Israelites, when in fact the Jews are the Old Testament Canaanites and Edomites. He continues, They danced around the images like pagans around a sacrifice, genuflecting to Reuchlin's image and sticking knives into Pfefferkorn. Pfefferkorn and Hoogstraten were outraged by Jewish effrontery. If the Jews are permitted to retain the books that have taken that have been taken from them by imperial mandate, Hoogstraten wrote, they will be confirmed in their perfidy. They will insult Christians and cast in their teeth that the books would not have been restored to them by imperial edict if they were not true and holy. Hoogstraten did not claim the Jews had bribed Reuchlin, but others did. Gregor Reich, a Carthusian prior, made the claim, which is reported by Geiger. Gret said the bribery was the charge that bothered Reuchlin the most, and he rejected it forcefully. 
Reuchlin admitted he had dealings with Jews, but he was infuriated over the claim he had been bribed by the Jews. I say, therefore, by the highest faith, that in my entire life, from the days of my childhood up to this hour, I have not received one nickel, not one penny from the Jews. Neither have I received gold or silver, nor have I hoped to. No Jew, he continued, offered me rent, services of any kind of reward. And anyone who writes otherwise injures my honor, and is a liar and a base villain. Reuchlin's Augenspiegel caused an immediate sensation. Within a few weeks, it was read all over the Germanies, meaning the various German states. Pfefferkorn claimed the Jews rushed out to buy Reuchlin's book as soon as they heard it dealt with them favorably. But Geiger claims that once the Jews got their books back in 1510, they lost interest in the controversy. Greats claims the Jews naturally saw Reuchlin as their champion, and just as naturally promoted his book. So Gretz agrees with Pfefferkorn, who was, even though he's a Jew too, who was an eyewitness to the events. They were pleased and dumbfounded to find that so distinguished a man as Reuchlin would set an accuser of the Jews in the pillory as a calumniator and a liar in reference to Pfefferkorn. Having one of the most distinguished Christian scholars in Europe defend the Talmud left Jews rubbing their eyes in amazement. The Jews rushed out to buy Reuchlin's book, and using their commercial connections, made it an instant bestseller, perhaps the first in history. The Jews, according to Gretz, greedily bought a book in which, for the first time, a man of honor entered the lists on their behalf. They rejoiced at having found a champion who would find fault with them for laboring in the promulgation of Reuchlin's pamphlet. In September 1511, Peter Meyer, a pastor in Frankfurt, allowed Pfefferkorn to preach a counterattack on Reuchlin's pamphlet, another error that the humanists would later take advantage of, something which outraged Reuchlin even more since Pfefferkorn was a married layman. The Dominicans were furious because Reuchlin had ruined their centuries-old campaign to convert the Jews, allowing them to keep their own holy books as deemed legitimate. They demanded confiscation and destruction of any remaining copies of the Augenspiegel. Arnold von Tungern, a leader of the Cologne faction, wrote, to the emperor complaining that the Augenspiegel was full of assertions promoting Judaism and would strengthen the Jews in their defiance of the Christian faith. Since Reuchlin boldly refused to retract his errors and countered with threats of his own, von Tungern concluded correctly that he knew, meaning Reuchlin knew, that he had many supporters ready to protect him. Virtually the entire humanist community had united behind Reuchlin, and out of that group would come many reformers, including 
Martin Luther, and Ulrich von Hutten, who later wrote to Reuschlin pledging his support. And Jones takes a lot of things and, and turns them to his advantage, leaving out a lot of the story. To the contrary, Ulrich von Hutten was never a reformer, as we had discussed at great length in our series on Martin Luther. Hutton was an immoral pagan humanist, a licentious man who died of syphilis, who desired to undermine Roman church authority and loot the Catholic clergy in the process. Like the other German humanists, he first rallied to Reuschland's cause and then to Luther's, looking only for a vehicle by which to achieve his own ends. While Luther may have been a humanist in many respects, he was nevertheless a true reformer who sought to correct the Roman Church and only broke with it upon realizing that correction was impossible during the indulgences dispute. It is our opinion that Jones, being a traditional Roman Catholic himself, is either ignorant of or apathetic to the real problems within the medieval church which helped give credibility to the Reformation. Jones continues, by this point, the controversy had gone well beyond its initial impetus. Geiger says the affair began as a crusade against Jews, but the confrontation between humanists and scholastics soon eclipsed the original issue. And of course, Reuschlin, Hutton, Erasmus of Rotterdam, Mutian, Crotus Rubianus, and a host of others were on the side of the humanists, and on the side of the scholastics were primarily the Dominican monks, and then all of the various priests and university professors strewn throughout Germany who were traditional Catholics and very anti-Jewish. This was quite fortuitous for the Jews, because now, once the, well, once the focus of attention was shifted, now they could benefit from the outcome without risking the danger as being seen as the center of the controversy. But the shift in focus, which occurred as the humanists rallied to the cause of the Jews on the side of Reuschlin, may not have been a coincidence. So while the struggle centered around Reuschlin all along should have had the question of the Jewish books at its center, and whether or not Germany would continue to allow the printing and dissemination of those books within the empire. That should have been at the center of the entire controversy. But when the humanists got involved, it became a fight between the humanists 
and the traditional Catholic professors and university teachers who did not want to, who wanted to maintain the status quo and keep what they saw as heresy out of the hands of students. So this is a moral battle of a major scale, but both sides have their rights and their wrongs. However, the Jews would be the primary beneficiaries because they would forever be allowed to keep their Talmuds and their Kabbalahs and spread their smut. Which way do you go? By 1511, he said, the business of the Jewish books was over and the intellectual battle began. Its character changed for this and assumed an essentially different form. There were barely any references to the books from that point on and none at all to the Jews. At issue was the right to express one's opinion freely, to counter the inquisitorial fixation on heresy. But the focus of the debate also shifted because Reuchlin, with images of the Spanish Inquisition fresh in his mind, felt that the charges of Judaizing were serious to the point of being life-threatening. As a result, he wanted to guide the uproar into safer channels. He, needed, he couldn't do that by himself. He needed a lot of help to do that, and he got it from the humanists, because Reuchlin, in his comments over the Kabbalah and the fact that he thought Jews should be teaching Hebrew in Christian universities, he certainly was a Judaizer, without a doubt. In September 1513, Jacob Hoogstraten summonsed Reuchlin to appear before the Inquisition in Mainz to defend himself against charges of heresy and Judaizing. If the issue, as Geiger claimed, was no longer the Jews, Hoogstraten was unaware of the change. You, the Dominican wrote to Reuchlin, appeared before Christian readers as a champion of the perfidious Jews, and you made this impression also on the Jews themselves, who are hostile toward the cross and blood through which we have been purified and redeemed. As we hear, they read your tract, which has been written and published in our vernacular language, and disseminated it. Thus you have been given them thus you have given them an opportunity to deride us more than ever, for they found that among Christians, and especially Christians who had a reputation for great learning, you were the only one who spoke on their behalf and maintained and defended their cause. And Geiger is wrong. While the Dominicans, of course, were focusing on Reuchlin and Reuchlin's defense of the Talmud and the Kabbalah, the humanists, and we saw this all throughout our series on the Reuchlin controversy presenting Martin Luther in Life and Death, the humanists in all of the tracts 
that they published in defense of Reuschlin never mentioned the Jews, the Talmud, and the Kabbalah. They only argued on the basis of freedom of scholarship, freedom of investigation, freedom of open inquiry, and, and such arguments like that, which actually did result in masking the central issue as to whether or not the Jews should be allowed to keep and continue to publish their Talmud and their other wicked books. Continuing with Jones, the Dominicans got an order from the emperor allowing them to confiscate copies of the Augenspiegel, which was Reuschland's defense, and burn them in public. The students at the university protested, but the confiscation continued. This is at Cologne. And all were to be burned on October 12th, when an order halting the burden, burning arrived. Pfefferkorn countered by publishing Bronspiegel, meaning burning mirror, which Geiger calls poisonous, demanding the Jews be expelled from Varms, Frankfurt, and Regensburg forever. Undeterred, Reuschlin appealed to the emperor, claiming that his opponents weren't theologians, they were theologists. The Cologne crowd were all slanderers. According to Geiger, Reuschlin gave as good as he got. Reuschlin's bitterness drove him to repeat the scurrilous stories about Mrs. Pfefferkorn's reputed sexual relations with the Cologne Dominicans. In June 1513, the Emperor imposed silence on all parties. In July, the theology faculty at the University of Louvain rendered its verdict. Cologne and Louvain would later become centers of the anti-Lutheran movement, and both considered themselves defenders of the faith. The theologians of Louvain concluded that Reuschlin's Augenspiegel had numerous errors, casting into question the orthodoxy of its author and promoting the cause of the Jews. Therefore, all remaining copies should be confiscated and burned. The Cologne theology faculty concurred in August. The theologians of Mainz followed suit shortly after, shortly thereafter. The Augenspiegel was to be consigned to the flames. The theologians at Erfurt, a bastion of the new humanism and soon to go over to the reformed camp, demurred. They found the pamphlet full of errors, but Reuschlin was not guilty because he never intended to publish it. The Augenspiegel was heretical, but its author was not a heretic, seemed to be their conclusion. And that sounds sort of like the Protestant motto, hate the sin, love the sinner. In May 1514, a delegate from Cologne met with the theology faculty at the University of Paris to elicit their opinion. 
Louis XII, the French monarch, reminded the theologians there that St. Louis, his predecessor, had ordered the burning of the Talmud when he was king. And that was in, like, 1240 A.D. That was the Disputation of Paris. Recognizing the seriousness of the charges, Reuchlin employed a dual strategy to escape being burned at the stake. He engaged in a publicity campaign, enlisting the support of prominent writers like Erasmus and experienced publicists like Ulrich von Hutton. And he also waged a legal battle. He issued a public statement against the Cologne slanderers while pursuing a legal challenge to Mainz's jurisdiction over his cause. He used the press to reformulate the issue from the dangerous charge of Judaizing, redirecting it to the safer issue of academic freedom. And of course... Jones is giving credit to Reuchlin for all this when we didn't get that from our history as it was presented by Johann Janssen, where it seems that the humanists actively took it upon themselves to take advantage of the Reuchlin debate and use it to press their own cause. In the, in the fight over publishing what they wanted from the Greek classics and all of the profane literature, as we saw in the beginning of Jones's chapter here, as Erasmus said that a new day was dawning in Europe where the age of obscurantism was over. The obscurantists, meaning the traditional Roman Catholic Church institutions, would obscure literature which was found contrary to perceived Christian doctrine. And that's how Erasmus used the term. The obscurance would suppress and ban the publishing of books which were seen to be contrary to good Christian morals and established church doctrines. Now, we see a two-edged sword in that because we as good Christians do not want to see the publication of smut, of Jewish pornography, and things like that. We would love to see that be rid of but we would not want to see banned such classics as Herodotus or Thucydides or, or Plutarch or any of the pagan historians because they inform us of the ancient world. Whereas the church took it upon themselves to regulate the publishing of all books and at one point I remember in the um, Fifth Lateran Council under De Medici, they had already banned publishing of scripture in profane languages. And in the Fifth Lateran Council, they actually banned the publication of any book anywhere without permission from a local bishop.
So that would virtually prohibit people from printing good things like the Bible. So it's a two-edged sword. Having the freedom of inquiry, we also give the enemy within the ability to undermine our society. And that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. Because we, as Christians, we think that we should have tolerance. But our Christ warns us about tolerating evil. We shouldn't have tolerance. Tolerance is not Christian. Reuschland portrayed himself as a learned preservationist who wanted to keep the obscurantists from consigning valuable historical documents to the flames. That's how he's repackaging his defense of the Talmud and the Kabbalah. Reuschland portrayed his battle with Pfefferkorn as a contest between scholars who respected books as cultural witnesses against boars who had no appreciation for them. More specifically, it pitted Reuschland the Humanist against Pfefferkorn and his supporters, the scholastic theologians of Cologne. This implied that the study of ancient languages had priority over Aristotelian logic, referring to the dialectic methods of the medieval theologians, which was a controversial assertion, but nowhere as controversial as the claim that Reuschland was a Judaizer. Pfefferkorn and the Dominicans fought an uphill battle to portray themselves as the champions of orthodoxy, fighting Judaizing heretics because large segments of the intellectual establishment thought humanistic letters more palatable than scholasticism, which they disdained as moribund. Reuschland's strategy was apparent from the opening lines of his Defensio Contra Columniatores, Suos Coloniensis, their speech is rust that's his defense against the calumniators, right? Their speech is rustic and barbarous. They are inexperienced in the Latin language and disgusted with humanistic studies. Reuschlin launched an ad hominem attack on Pfefferkorn as someone who is ignorant of theology and law, inexperienced in literature, and knowing no book written in the Latin language. Although Pfefferkorn knew no Latin, he was a layman. His knowledge of Hebrew was superior to Reuschland's, because he was a Jew. A charge Reuschland attempted to deflect by saying Pfefferkorn, who was equipped only with some childish, trite Jewish stuff, undertook to write against me and publish a slanderous book in German, full of invented charges. That trite Jewish stuff, though, was not insignificant. The discussion began as a dispute over the content of books written in Hebrew, books Reuschland had apparently 
not read Anne Jones documented earlier in his chapter that Roisland had never actually read the Talmud. He only read the Kabbalah. He never read the Talmud, but took up a defense of it. Pfefferkorn then raised the bigger question, which echoed unresolved throughout the realist versus nominalist debate since before Huss. Learning, Pfefferkorn replied, is no defense against the charge of depravity. All the heretics are proof of this, for they were always the most learned men. As an integral part of his ad hominem attack on Pfefferkorn, Roisland rolled out one racial slur after another, referring to Pfefferkorn as that Jew sprinkled with water. Roisland and his humanist allies routinely referred to Pfefferkorn as the Toft Yud, a slur that simultaneously maligned Jews and the sacrament of baptism. The frequency of this slur indicated that the rise of racism in Europe and the decline of the Catholic faith, specifically skepticism about the efficacy of the sacraments, were one and the same thing. Gone were the days when the howling mob would chase the Jew to the baptismal font and then let him walk away unharmed through the very same mob, like Moses dry-shod through the Red Sea after becoming a Christian. And sadly, the humanists understood what the Roman Catholic Church had failed to come to terms with during the Spanish Inquisition, when even Isabella had to put the Pope in his place, that Jewish treachery is a matter of their race and not of their confession. Because the Church adopted a policy concerning baptism, which was actually anti-Christian and contrary to nature, it suffered ridicule. It would not have suffered that ridicule if it had kept to the gospel of Christ over the doctrines of men. And we will, we will discuss that more shortly. For now, we will continue with Jones. Willie Bald Perkheimer came to Roisland's defense in 1517, about the time Luther nailed his theses to the door in Wittenberg, an initial supporter of the Reformed cause. Perkheimer quickly became disillusioned with Luther's ruthless politics and the pillaging of the monasteries for political gain. He returned to the Catholic faith. Now, Perkheimer was a highly educated Renaissance humanist at Nuremberg. He was a lawyer and a translator of classical Greek and Latin texts into German. He was also an advisor at times to the emperor on such matters. In defending Reuschland, Perkheimer mounted an attack on Pfefferkorn by casting doubt on the efficacy of his baptism, and by extension, the sacrament itself, which was suddenly powerless when faced with racial characteristics deeply ingrained in Jews. To strengthen his case, Perkheimer referred to recent events in Spain, and he said that those events will serve as a warning to us not to trust in extemporized and feigned 
conversions. It would have been much better for the so-called Moranos to stay with their native perfidy than to simulate the true religion and be Judaizers in secret. For we had several examples of what we can expect from these inveterate sinners who have been badly converted. The emperor wanted to indicate that converted Jews have as much in common with pious Christians as mice with cats. Now, Jones is charging Perkheimer with racism, and I can only say that we wish Perkheimer, we will, we will show, Jones is also going to charge Reuschlin and all the humanists with racism, and we will explain why, and we will show why. The statements Jones uses to try to prove their racism isn't, they were not racist at all. There is not one racist statement here from Perkheimer, even though Jones claims that Perkheimer's a racist, and we will see. But first, we're going to address this church belief in baptism, that baptism can actually change the nature of a person, and if you challenge the fact that baptism, that the nature of that person is still wicked, you're actually challenging the efficacy of, bap of baptism. So, the church upholds the supposed magical efficacy of their baptism ritual, and if the person is still an evil, wicked son of a bitch, then you can't show that, you can't bring that to light, because that undermines the belief in the church efficacy of the baptism ritual. It puts the Catholic Church in a really absurd predicament, and Jones upholds it. Jones thinks that's cool, that's all right. To quote from a paper at Christagenia entitled, Baptism in What? It is observed at Matthew 23.15 that the Pharisees were proselytizing or converting all sorts of people into Judaism. It seems that after the absorption of the Edomites into Judea, recorded by Flavius Josephus and by Strabo, and explained by Paul in Romans chapters 9-11, that anything became possible. Baptism, not the cleansing of one who was already an Israelite, which is what John was doing, but rather seen as the mystical metamorphosis of one who was not, was an important part of such proselytizing. John Lightfoot, in the 17th century, in volume 2, on pages 55 through 63, in his Commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and Hebraica, meaning Hebrew writings, explains the details of this proselytizing, and he says, according to the Jews, whensoever any heathen will betake himself and be joined to the covenant of Israel, as the Jews consider it, and take the yoke of the law upon him, Voluntary circumcision, baptism, and oblation are required. If an Israelite takes a Gentile child, or finds a Gentile infant, and baptizes him in the name of a proselyte, behold, he is a proselyte. First, 
You see, baptism inseparably joined to the circumcision of proselytes. Secondly, observing these things which it had been which have been spoken, how very known and frequent the use of baptism was among the Jews. The reason appears very easy why the Sanhedrin, by their messengers, inquire not of John concerning the reason of baptism, but concerning the authority of the baptizer, not what baptism meant, but from where he had a license to baptize. And that is a very good observation on the part of John Lightfoot. And Lightfoot goes on to explain that once a proselyte was baptized, he was considered an Israelite in all respects. The same attitude that all of the so-called churches have today, taking anyone at all in off the streets and baptizing them as quote-unquote Christians. Yet, it is evident that the, the John the Baptist did no such thing. He would not baptize a viper. To this very day, unbeknownst to most Christians, and that's the end of our quote from our paper, Baptism in What? To this very day, unbeknownst to most Christians, the mikvah, or ritual bath, is a part of the religious ritual which must be undergone by converts to Judaism. You get into the water a Gentile and you come out a quote-unquote Israelite. It is clearly the leaven of the Pharisees which Christ had renounced. A bath in water does not change one's inherent nature. But the early Roman Catholic Church had adopted such an idea from the Jews. In contrast, in Acts chapters 11 and 15, the Apostle Peter attests that the Holy Spirit had come upon those hearing and accepting the word of God without such a baptism. And as Christ himself attested in Acts chapter 1, that was the true Christian baptism. The Roman Catholic Church deserves ridicule for following the Jews instead of Christ. But the humanists use the church error to their own advantage. Quite oddly, in spite of this realization by the humanists, the Protestant denominations which came out of the Reformation all maintained the same basic doctrine concerning baptism that the Roman Catholic Church had upheld that they got from the Jews. Imagine that. Continuing with Jones, the humanists cheerfully joined forces with Perkheimer to promote similar racial views. And we're going to show that this is all bunk. But his outrage, I'm sorry, Perkheimer is outraged that Pfefferkorn referred to Reuschland as a semi-Jew, but his outrage is purely racial, according to Jones. To Perkheimer, the Jew is a function of his biology, and in this he agrees with the Jews who reminded Christ they were sperma abramo, and or sperm of Abraham, right? Seed of Abraham, John chapter 8. I think it's verse 33, 34. Like the Jews and the medieval Christians who followed them, 
Jones must also think that Christ needed correction. But reading John chapter 8, Christ actually refutes them all. He is not agreeing with them that they are the quote-unquote seed of Abraham to a point. They may have been the seed of Abraham, and Christ agreed. But their lineage came through Esau rather than Jacob, for which reason they were also the children of the devil, as Esau was a fornicator. To understand the refutation of the Jews' claims by Christ, one must understand what he said in Luke chapter 11. One must understand what Paul said in Romans chapter 9. And one must understand the intertestamental history of Judea recorded by Flavius Josephus and, in respect to the Edomites, briefly corroborated by Strabo or Strabo, in his geography, book 16. Pfefferkorn, Jones says, though innocently represented the traditional Catholic position by claiming that biology was irrelevant, the real issue which the humanists tried to obfuscate and ignore is that Reuschlin was a demi-Jew, because of his Judaizing positions, not because of his DNA, the humanists pray to the racism that had just reared its ugly head chose not to see things that way. Now, Jones also seems to be representing the anti-Christian and traditional Catholic position, which claims that biology is irrelevant. If biology was irrelevant, I don't know why we have all of those genealogies in the New and Old Testament. I don't know why we have references to tribes at all in the New Testament as well as the Old. But did the humanists really feel that way? Or were they rather latching onto any device possible by which to insult and discredit their adversaries, which was certainly the method they had used in all of their diatribes against their enemies, whether they be Converso Jews, the Pope, or even the Dominican monks? How could the humanists really be racists if they took to defending Reuschlin for his defense? of the Jewish books long before they began their derisive attacks on Pfefferkorn. For now, we will continue with Jones. Reuschland's numerous friends, Gretz writes, he's quoting the Jewish, the very biased Jewish historian Heinrich Gretz. Reuschland's numerous friends, referring indirectly to Perkheimer, were indignant at the insolence of a baptized Jew who pretended to be more sound in faith than a born Christian in good standing. Gretz's refusal to see the term baptized Jew as something of a contradiction in terms demonstrates that he shared the racial prejudices of the humanist establishment. In other words, in Michael Jones's view, if you recognize the race of somebody who's Catholic, Jewish, German, you're a racist. Erasmus, 
Jones says. Erasmus said of Pfefferkorn that he could not have done a greater service to his fellow believers. And then in parentheses, Jones writes sick, i.e. the Jews. But Erasmus used the term fellow believers. Jones is going to try to make Erasmus a racist with his own parenthetical comment. Jones is really off base here. And I lost a lot of respect for him in this section. He could not have done a greater service to his fellow believers than by making use of the hypocritical ruse of becoming a Christian in order to betray Christianity. This half-Jew, Erasmus continued, has done more damage to Christianity than the whole pack of Jews together. Pfefferkorn was theologically correct to refer to Reuschland as a half-Jew because of Reuschland's Judaizing. But Erasmus was guilty of nothing but racism when he leveled the same accusation against Pfefferkorn. He too was casting aspersions on the efficacy of the sacrament of baptism. Now that he has put a mask, put on the mask of the Christian, Jones again quoting Erasmus, he truly plays the Jew. Now at last he is true to his race. They have slandered Christ. But Christ, not only, he raves against many upright men of proven virtue and learning. This muddled racist thinking indicated a precipitous decline in the faith of the sort that would become manifest when the Reformation broke out a few years later. The Jew Heinrich Gretz clearly understood that the baptized Jew was still a Jew, as the Spanish had also learned the hard way. But Jones, Jones evidently thinks that it is evil for either a Jew or a Christian to recognize the realities of nature. If Erasmus was exhibiting racism in this instance, why would he refer to Jews as Pfefferkorn's fellow believers? And why would he refer to Pfefferkorn as a half-Jew and not a Jew entirely? Rather, it seems that the accusation Erasmus is making is that Pfefferkorn is a false convert, as the labels he uses are not truly racial in nature. Erasmus is only returning to Pfefferkorn, the same language that Pfefferkorn used against Reuschland, and insinuating that Pfefferkorn is a false convert operating on behalf of the Jews. Neither were Perkheimer's remarks truly racist, since Perkheimer used the analogy in reference to cats and mice in the context of converso Jews who claimed to be Christian but who were secretly practicing Judaism, as was the experience in Spain, which he cited as a warning to us not to trust in extemporized and feigned conversions. The remark cited makes no mention of the possibility of sincere conversions. Jones needs much more evidence 
to substantiate his claims of racism. They simply do not stand, except that perhaps Jones wants to see them. It almost seems as if Jones is looking for racism so that he may characterize racism as an anti-Christian idea and attribute that to the Jews as well. He then goes so far as to blame disaffection with the Roman Catholic Church on racism. In truth, God is a racist, and it is unfortunate that the Germans were not. If the Germans were racists, they would have followed Luther's advice when he published On the Jews and Their Lies, but they did not, because they were not racists. The fruits of the Reformation were not racist. Jones is creating a false accusation of racism to support his own particular Catholic agenda. Jones continues, In a letter to Perkheimer, Erasmus said Pfefferkorn's actions show that he is a Jew and a half whom no kind of misdeed could make worse than he already is. Erasmus then adds rash judgment to his offenses against Pfefferkorn, intimating Pfefferkorn chose to be baptized for no other reason than to be in a better position to, de to destroy Christianity, and by mixing with us, infect the whole people with his Jewish poison. He didn't say his Jewish sperm, he said his Jewish poison, meaning his doctrines, his beliefs, not his genetics. So, Jones is looking for racism where it is not there. We wish it was there, but it's not. For what harm could he have inflicted if he had remained a Jew? But now that he has put on the mask of the Christian, he truly plays the Jew. Now at last, he is true to his race. The irony of intellectual lights like Erasmus supporting anti-Semitic Christian Judaizers was not lost on Pfefferkorn, the Orthodox Jewish convert, and it saddened him. Even the mere recognition of race does not make Erasmus a racist, since his attacks were not on Pfefferkorn's race, but on the sincerity of his conversion. What Erasmus was doing was using a straw man argument and accusing Pfefferkorn of what Reuschland was actually guilty of as a means of deflecting criticism of Reuschland for Judaizing. But Erasmus was hardly guilty of racism. It was the goal of Erasmus to end what he had called the obscurantism of the Roman Catholic Church, so that he and his fellow humanists could satiate their desire for profane and often immoral literature. If the Dominican monks prevailed over Reuschland, the cause of the pagan humanists like Erasmus would suffer as well. And since Pfefferkorn was their mouthpiece, he was suffering the ire of Erasmus. But here Jones continues to perpetuate his false accusations of racism. And he says, Reuschland continued his racial attack on Pfefferkorn throughout the Augenspiegel, feigning outrage at how that Jew baptized with water rose up in the church 
a married layman before the congregation of the faithful, that is, before the assembled church, and preached about the word of God and the Christian faith in an authoritative manner. He, a butcher and an ignoramus, blessed the people with the sign of the cross. Reuchlin's reference to Pfefferkorn as a butcher shows his familiarity with the slanders the Regensburg Jews had promoted against Pfefferkorn. The reference also shows that he was not averse to stooping to their level. And we must say that even here, the basis for Reuchlin's criticism was the fact that Pfefferkorn was married and a layman, and according to the Catholic orthodoxy of the time, he should not have taken the pulpit. So Reuchlin's appeal to Pfefferkorn's being a Jew is in the context of an insinuation that his conversion was not sincere because of his transgression of the tradition that is not necessarily racist. Jones is looking for racism on the part of the humanists and in reality and as we've shown earlier in our series on Martin Luther, the humanists were exactly the contrary. They were ecumenists. They were egalitarians. They were certainly religious egalitarians. They were only using Pfefferkorn's position to their advantage, just like they consistently disparaged the Dominican monks. Jones continues by saying, one commentator noticed the irony inherent in the fact that the Cologne Dominicans supported Pfefferkorn, an ethnic Jew, while manifesting paranoid fear of all things Jewish, meaning the Talmud and the Kabbalah. But the irony is illusory. There is no contradiction. The Dominicans believed in the sincerity of Pfefferkorn's conversion, and as a result, did not consider him a Jew. The humanists, though, had no qualms about casting aspersions on the efficacy of the sacrament of baptism, engaging in racial slurs, and throwing their whole lot wholeheartedly in with the Judaizer, meaning Reuschlin. And here is Jones's true bias. Jones characterizes the attacks of the humanists on Pfefferkorn as racist because Jones believes in the Catholic Church claims concerning the efficacy of baptism. But the criticisms of the humanists are not racist in the sense which Jones imagines. If they were racists, how could they have been found supporting Reuschlin in the first place? The humanists are only attacking the sincerity of Pfefferkorn's conversion, because all Jews, unconverted Jews and Murano Jews, were seen as treacherous. And for that reason, Erasmus accused him of being in league with his fellow believers. Strange it is that Jones could characterize Reuschlin as a racist when he had advised that the universities hire rabbis to assist in the study of scripture and language. Continuing with Jones... 
After Hoogstraten demanded that Reuschland appear before the tribunal in Mainz, Reuschland panicked and tried to get the trial moved to the more sympathetic papal court at Spire. He wrote to Hebrew, he, I'm sorry, he wrote in Hebrew to Bonet de Lattes, the Pope's Jewish physician, asking him who as he said in quotes, moves daily in the private chambers of the Pope, and whose body is in his care, to influence the pontiff, the pontiff to remove the case from the jurisdiction of the Dominicans at Mainz. Both Geiger and Gretz considered the letter conclusive evidence that proves Reuschling conspired with the Jews, and even if he did not, the letter shows that Reuschling was hardly a racist. Jones quotes, quoting Geiger, Had the Cologne contingent read the letter, writes Geiger, the milder and less ideological of the two Jewish historians, then they would have had fresh ammunition added to their charge that Reuschland was a Judaizer, because Reuschland was even more fawning toward Bonnet de Lattes than the usual Hebrew epistolary style demanded, the Hebrew style of letter writing. No German Christian had ever written to a Jew in terms like this before. Reuschland added that he had defended the usefulness of the Jews' books, and so had drawn the hatred of the Cologne crowd. Reuschland ended by saying that he did not fear a papal verdict, only being dragged into a court under the influence of the Dominicans. Gretz confirms that Reuschland had secret intercourse with the rabbis. He cites Reuschland's letter in Hebrew to Bonnet de Lattes as an attempt to win over Leo X, who was Giovanni de' Medici, so that the trial might not take place in Cologne or its vicinity, where his cause would be lost. Reuschland told Bonnet de Lattes in great detail how only his extraordinary efforts had saved the Talmud from destruction, in a particularly damning fashion, even to someone like Gretz, who was heavily prejudiced in his favor. Had the Dominicans been able to get a hold of and read this letter, Gretz says, they could have brought forward incontestable proof of Reuschland's friendliness towards the Jews, for in it, he wrote much that he had publicly denied. Reuschland, in other words, used his position on the commission to advance the cause of the Jews. And now he was citing this service in his letter to the Pope's Jewish physician and asking for payment, if not in money, then certainly in services. Given this frank demand for quid pro quo, Gretz finds it natural that Bonet de Lattes brought all his influence to bear in favor of Reuschland. Bonet de Lattes must have been especially effective. Reuschland's case was transferred to the Bishop of Spire in November 1513, and there Hoogstraten lost his case the following April. All charges against heresy were dismissed. All charges of heresy against Reuschland were dismissed.
Hoogstraten was found guilty of slander and ordered to pay a fine or face excommunication. The Dominicans raged when the judgment was announced. When the verdict was announced in Cologne, Pfefferkorn ripped it from the wall and tore it into pieces. Shortly after the verdict, Pfefferkorn responded with another pamphlet, Sturmglock or Storm Warning. In it, Pfefferkorn referred with retrospective satisfaction to the condemnation of Augenspiegel, issued by the Theology Department of the University of Paris. He also left no doubt about the magnitude of the danger for the entire church that Reuchlin represented as the head of a new heretical movement. Pfefferkorn claimed Reuchlin was a new huss encouraged and paid for by the Jews, whose followers could do more harm to the church than any external enemy. Reuschlin was the real demi-Jew. Reuschlin, the Judaizer, should be feared because from his movement would spill disorders that would make the Hussite Wars of the 15th century look like a picnic by comparison. In response to Sturm Glock, Reuschlin published a self-serving anthology of letters of support he had received entitled Letters of Famous Men, in which he predicted that when the scholastic theologians were done with him, they would gag all poets one after another. And we had learned in a series on Martin Luther that the so-called German poets were really just a bunch of immoral pagan humanists. Other humanists embraced Reuschlin's interpretation and began a letter-writing campaign to mobilize public opinion against the Dominican theologians. And we saw that at the vanguard of that movement were Ulrich von Hutten and Crotus Rubianus, Martin Luther's boyhood friend. We have already seen in our presentations of the career of Martin Luther that the humanists would abandon Reuschlin, who ultimately lost his cause, but only suffered token punishment, and they would take up the cause of Luther. But Reuschlin despised Luther and remained a Catholic, which even caused him to become estranged with his own nephew and protege, Philip Melanchthon. While Reuschlin was not the vehicle, the humanists which rallied to Luther's cause continued to side with the Jews, and the Jews ultimately saw the Reformation as a blessing to their own aspirations, and they initially admired Martin Luther. When Luther failed to convert them, then he turned on them. We have one more segment before we conclude Jones's chapter and move on to hopefully discuss the greater consequences of the relationship between the humanists and Jews with the protocols of Satan. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. And Caitlin, this is for you.